Hey yo friends, DS Moss here. I began the adventures of Memento Mori back in 2015, and over the years I've interviewed hundreds of the smartest humans around to see if I could find the meaning of life by looking through the lens of death. Now, I'm not going to tell you the meaning of life because you're going to have to figure that one out for yourself. But what I would like to offer you is a practical guide of all of the knowledge I've gathered for my adventures. It's called Starting Point. Starting Point offers courses, podcasts, articles, meditations, and inspirations to help you face mortality in order to live a more purposeful and deliberate life. Go to mystartingpoint.life and enter MORI as a coupon code to get 10% off any of the offerings. That's MORI, M-O-R-I, for a 10% discount at www.mystartingpoint.life. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. My name is Brittany Menard. I am 29 years old and I am terminally ill and I refuse to lose my dignity. I refuse to subject myself and my family to purposeless, prolonged pain and suffering at the hands of an incurable disease. The freedom of this patient right is choice. As part of the Reimagine Virtual Festival, celebrating life, loss, and love. And in collaboration with Keeper Memorials, Death Doula LA, and Compassion and Choices, the Adventures of Memento Mori hosted a conversation about medical aid in dying. Joining me were two family members whose terminally ill loved ones decided to peacefully end their lives. Myra Shulman, daughter of Beverly, and Dan Diaz, husband of Brittany Menard. I want to be sure my husband and mother are with me when I die. I want to leave this earth in my home, in the arms of my husband and my parents. And I am preparing to experience the best possible death. Achieving some control over my passing is very important to me. Knowing that I can leave this life with dignity allows me to focus on living. It has provided me enormous peace of mind. In our conversation, we discuss the importance of terminology, personal empowerment, and the particulars of the process. We then question why dying in peace with grace and dignity would be considered controversial. What you're about to listen to is an edited version of that conversation. So please join me in season two, episode 18, Demystifying Medical Aid and Dying, Family Voices. From the Jones Story Company, this is The Adventures of Memento Mori, a cynic's guide for learning to live by remembering to die. The podcast that explores mortality. Here's your host, D.S. Moss. Before we begin with the demystifying medical aid and dying family voices conversation at Reimagine 2020, let me define what that term means. 
Medical Aid in Dying is a medical practice that provides ineligible, terminally ill, mentally capable adult with a prognosis of six months or less to live with the option for self-medication they can decide to self-ingest to end their lives peacefully. Currently, there are 10 jurisdictions where medical aid in dying is authorized. Six of those 10 have authorized it in the last five years. The legal jurisdictions are California, Colorado, Hawaii, Montana, Maine, New Jersey, Oregon, Vermont, Washington, and the District of Columbia. And now, reimagine. And it is my profound pleasure to welcome to this conversation, Dan Diaz and Myra Schulman about family voices in demystifying medical aid in dying. Welcome, Dan and Myra. What we want to focus tonight on is a conversation, a conversation about the perspectives of two families that have navigated through this experience and are willing to share their, their stories. So let's go ahead and dive right in. So Dan, would you mind starting us off with an introduction of your story? Brittany and I, we met in 2007. We dated for a few years. We lived together down in San Clemente, California. In 2012, we bought a home together and we got married September of that year, 2012. A few weeks after we got married, Brittany started suffering, uh, having these headaches they subsided for a while, um, but by the beginning of 2013, those headaches were back and they were pretty intense. They'd wake her up in the middle of the night. She'd start throwing up, be unable to go back to sleep. A uh, specialist gave her a prescription for migraines. They didn't do a scan or anything at that time. And oddly, that seemed to help for a while. Um, but by the end of that year, um, Brittany, the, the headaches were back and things were just getting worse. Uh, so it was actually on New Year's Day of 2014 that um, I took Brittany to the emergency room because the headaches were particularly bad that day. Uh, we had just come back from lunch. She was throwing up. And uh, that was the first time, first time that they did a CT scan. And um, shortly thereafter, we discovered that Brittany had a tumor, that it was very large, and that there was no cure. And they then told Brittany that six months was all the time that she had left. With that news, Brittany decided that she wanted to have a little bit of control of how her dying process might go. So California did not have medical aid dying available. So we moved to Oregon. She found a house for us to rent on Craigslist. She established residency. She had to find a new medical team. And we were living in Portland, Oregon, and we were researching every clinical trial that offered any glimmer of hope. But at the same time, Brittany then applied for, qualified for, and received the prescription for medical aid and dying. And it was on November 1st of 2014 that uh, the symptoms that Brittany was suffering from, at this point, it's the seizures that are becoming increasingly frequent and severe that pain that I alluded to at the base of her skull that just would not go away, sleepless nights, the nausea, the vomiting, all of that. It was clear, Brittany would say that, you know, I'm dying and this tumor is ending my life. 
So it was on November 1st when Brittany decided she'd prefer to pass away gently, utilizing medical aid and dying instead of allowing that tumor to continue, essentially to torture her to death. So on November 1st, within five minutes of taking the sequel was the medication, uh, Brittany fell asleep very peacefully. Uh, and within 30 minutes, her breathing slowed to the point where she passed away. When Brittany died, there were only four states that offered this option. Dan made a promise to Brittany to use her story as a voice of advocacy to make a difference in getting medical aid and dying legislation passed in more states. One of those states being California, the location of our next family story, told by Myra Shulman. So this is a story about my mother, Beverly. Uh, she lived in uh, the Los Angeles area and mom was this energetic person whose life was really all about service. She was an elementary school teacher in an inner city school in Los Angeles. She taught till she was 75 and the minute she retired, she became a, uh, a volunteer at the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History and led school group tours there. Outside of that, she tutored adults and tutored children in reading and math and science. So she, she really cared about people and, and did a lot of work uh, with that. But, but she also had all this energy. She went to theaters and movies and walked everywhere, went in Trader Joe's, walked to Trader Joe's to get her groceries. And, and uh, you know, into her 80s, she had that level of energy. And we, we would call her the Energizer Bunny because she was just so unstoppable. Anyway, eventually, three years ago, she, four years ago, she started taking naps, which completely freaked me out because my mother never took naps. And eventually she was diagnosed with colon cancer, which by the time it was discovered had already metastasized to her liver, which is incurable. So she was terminally ill when she was diagnosed. And um, as I accompanied her to doctor visits, they would say, uh, so you can either have surgery to remove the, the tumor in your colon, um, or, and, you know, die a better death from liver failure, or you can have a horrible death dying from a blocked colon. And my mother looked at the doctor and she said, well, these days we have a third option. We have, I can request a prescription, which would allow me to end my, my own life and not do either of those other things. So uh, these conversations with the doctors went on, every single one of them, it was kind of like it was news to them actually that a patient was thinking about this. My mother did decide to have the surgery to remove the colon uh, tumor, though she was very ambivalent about it. And um, it did, took her a long time to recover, but she had a few months where she was much, had a lot more energy, et cetera. But then the fatigue and tiredness came back the liver tumors were growing and the doctors decided that she had less than six months to live and gave her that diagnosis at that point. The surgeon, the surgical oncologist agreed to be the consulting physician and my mother received the prescription. Anyways, 
eventually she said, okay, if I can't walk to Trader Joe's, my quality of life is too low. Well, she got to a point she couldn't walk to Trader Joe's. And she said, okay, if I can't walk around the block, my quality of life is too, too low. And then she couldn't actually walk out her front door. And that was the final, the final decision point for her because she was so weak and so fatigued and the pain in her abdomen was growing and growing. And she knew she was gonna need to have uh, in-home help. Uh, she would get weaker and weaker and need you know, personal intimate care that she did not want. She was very private, very reserved. That was not the way she wanted her life to go. And she had no choice about death. Death was there. So she decided it was time. And my sister had pulled out all the t-shirts my mother had from the Natural History Museum that had dinosaurs and butterflies and everything. Everyone, my sister and her husband and my husband and I and my mother all put on one of these shirts on my mother's last morning. We took pictures together. And then she got in her own bed in her own house. Thank you, Dan. She could do it in her own, hand, own house. And she drank the, the mixture with my sister and I holding her. And within just a few minutes, she was unconscious. And uh, it took five hours actually for her to finally pass away. But we were there the whole time, cuddling her, singing to her, telling stories from her childhood. It was really a gentle, beautiful way to go that I, now living in New York, I'm fighting hard to make available to people in my state. More demystifying medical aid in dying, Family Voices, after this. Hello, fellow provocateurs that believe death is a topic worth talking about. We need your help spreading the word. Be the slightly odd yet endlessly fascinating conversationalist at your next party and tell your friends about the adventures of Memento Mori. Have show ideas? Contact us on our site, remembertodie.com. Be sure to stay up to date with the quest for enlightenment on Instagram and Twitter by following at RememberToDie. And now, back to the show. Continuing the conversation with Myra Schulman and Dan Diaz as part of Reimagine, Demystifying Medical Aid in Dying Family Voices. I think it's important, um, and I'm going to ask both of you to help me level set of what this, what, what it means by helping me identify what it does not mean. So... Medical aid in dying is not active euthanasia. Medical aid in dying is not physician-assisted suicide. So Dan, can you, can, you, can you help articulate the difference between medical aid in dying um, and physician-assisted suicide? So the terminology that I use is medical aid in dying because that is accurate. It was indeed 
that medication that aided Brittany in her dying process. Euthanasia is a term that gets thrown around a lot. It has nothing to do with this. Uh, Euthanasia would be where a third person, a third party, is administering something to an individual. And even that the term physician-assisted suicide, the opponents like using that term, Mm -hmm. that conjures the notion that there's a physician doing something to the patient. And that also is not the way this plays out. Uh, in, In our case, the medication was sequel-barbital. There were 100 capsules. We had to open those 100 capsules, empty the powder into a glass. It took like 40 minutes to do that. That powder is then mixed with four or five ounces of water. And the, the, the strongest safeguard is that the terminally ill individual has to be able to consume that medication on her own. The opponents, they do like using that term suicide because their whole campaign seems to be focused around scaring people. Their campaign is based on fear. That term suicide is a very loaded term. Uh, Words not only have meaning, but they also possess temperature and color. And that term suicide is thrown around very irresponsibly by the opponents. So I want to make a distinction before going through this, that we need to, as a society, do a much better job and stop the, 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 the stigmatizing and the shame that we seem to place upon either the individuals or family members of individuals who have died by suicide. These are individuals who we as a society need to do a better job of caring for them, listening, being aware of those signs, um, because these are people who could otherwise, in the case of medical aid dying, and I'll use Brittany as the example, this person is terminally ill. The decision to continue living is no longer there, whereas in the case of an individual who is despondent, depressed, and they're contemplating suicide, that person may not at all be terminally ill. Uh, In the case of medical aid and dying, the person is mentally capable. In the case of medical aid and dying, that person wants to live. Brittany certainly wanted to live. In the case of a suicide, that person wants to or thinks that they want to die. In the case of medical aid and dying, the ending is planned. Brittany had seven people in the room. I was there, her parents, three of her friends, my younger brother. In the case of a suicide, that end is often very impulsive, many times with a firearm. In the case of a suicide, that death is often violent. The person is connected to loved ones. As I mentioned, there were seven people in that room with Brittany. Uh, In the case of a suicide, that person acts alone because if they do uh, inform anyone beforehand of what their intentions might be, those individuals might be investigated or potentially prosecuted. And then lastly, this is, I alluded to at the beginning, there's a normal grieving process. Brittany took control and was able to have a gentle dying process, and it allowed us all to prepare for that. In the case of a suicide, because of just such a shock to the family, uh, to the friends, to the loved ones, that there is then that sense of grief and shame and everything, which there should not be. But unfortunately, that, that is the reality. So. Um, just just to kind of share this so that the audience can understand what medical aid and dying provides. It's much more than just that medication. More than a third of the people who qualify for the medication, they never end up utilizing it. They die of their underlying disease without having to take the medication. But having that medication does provide a lot of relief, just knowing that they've 
taken back just that little bit of control from that disease. So thanks for uh, letting me to, to clarify and share that. Yeah, and you, you touched on something too that I find interesting about this idea of taking control, at least facing it on your on your terms. And so often we are we are told to to fight, right? Particularly cancer, we fight cancer. But um, it sounds like you're describing too that that you're not giving up hope necessarily, and you're not giving up the fight because you said if if a third of the people still die by the underlying disease that just demonstrates a, a, a another power and it did did Brittany experience uh, this other transformative or 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 I guess what I'm getting to was, was she af- afraid did, did fear override no and, her? and that's the thing that's that's the benefit of having had this option and having qualified for it as soon as we received, as soon as Brittany received the green light and we picked up that medication, the fear that she had previously, you know, she was terrified of how that brain tumor might end her life. Pain that not even morphine can alleviate. As the tumor grows and puts pressure on different parts of the brain, she loses her eyesight. So now she's blind. Partial paralysis is likely complete paralysis, a, a possibility. That terrified her. But as soon as she received the medication, that fear vanished because Brittany all of a sudden had, by having the medication, she had something that the tumor could not defeat. We as human beings, it's just our nature. We wanna control everything. Well, death certainly is one thing that you can't control. It comes for all of us. The method of that dying process though, that was something that this program afforded her just a little bit of control over. And, and for her, that was huge. So yes, it, it, it provided that ability for her to, it, it emboldened her um, to, to live as long as she possibly could, knowing that um, she, she had, uh, you know, secured the medication to, to uh, have some say as to how things play out. I, I agree with Dan. It was, it's very much adding another option that you have, you know, you don't, have to use it if, if you don't want to. I mean, if she could have decided to just go through with whatever was going to happen in her body. So she was very aware that this was, uh, this was increasing her choices about how her life might end. And, and effectively, there was no downside to it, you know, other than the hassles involved in, in going through the process to get the to get the prescription. Let's move into to the, the process and, and maybe if anybody is listening that that their family is faced with this. So we, we've we've gotten so far that so you have to I Myra you talked about you have to have two doctors. You have to have the, the prescribing doctor and the and the co prescribing doctor if I'm if I got that correctly. Does it take a long time? to actually get the medication? What was your experience, Dan? Well, hell, for us, we had to move to Portland in order to even start the process. (laughs) Outside of moving states. Yes, outside (laughs) of that. So the normal process is that, yes, two physicians have to agree, independent of one another, that that the the person is terminally ill. They have six months or less to live. Um, They make the request both verbally and in writing. Uh, In California, in most states, not all, but there's a 15-day waiting period. 
Um, as I mentioned, the strongest safeguard is um, that the patient has to be able to consume that medication on her own. It's not something that is given to the patient through an IV or anything. Um, so that, that's the process. It's you know, finding a physician that um, will participate. It is completely voluntary. Byron, do you want anything to add about? As I mentioned earlier, when my mother was you know, diagnosed as being terminally ill with cancer, but was not within the six month to end of life uh, prognosis, she began to talk about it with each doctor that you know she went to see. The first one she talked with was her internist who had been her doctor for, I don't know, 15 years or so, and she who, who she really liked. And he was extremely uncomfortable when she brought up the subject with him. And I mean, he, you know, tried to uh, address it by saying, you know, I'll make sure you don't die in pain. And that's, that's a very different answer. That's, uh, you know, I'll make sure you have palliative care. Uh, and I think palliative care is wonderful, but it's quite a different thing than being given the option to end your life at the time you choose when it is time to go when you're terminally ill. And he referred her to palliative care, but it actually took quite a bit of work on my sisters and my part to find a palliative care doctor, strangely enough. Um, uh, and that palliative care doctor did agree to be the prescribing physician. And his his story, he had, he had worked through the AIDS crisis and had really seen horrible, horrible deaths. And he really wanted patients to be able to have the option to, to have a gentle death. Um, and, and so he was, he was very supportive. And then um, the oncologist said, I'm, I'm a healer. I, I can't do this. And uh, but the, the surgeon, the surgical oncologist, when my mother asked her, she was like, well, of course, but you don't need to ask me. There are lots of doctors, you know, you have an internist, right? And it was, she was surprised to hear from my mother that other doctors were actually refusing. And when, when I, I took that doctor aside and I thanked her for being willing to be the consulting physician, and she just looked at me with surprise and she's like, I'm just treating your mother the way I would like to be treated. And, um, and that, you know, that really spoke to me <laughs> that it's, I think it's something that people, once they put themselves in that position can, can really understand. Just to be clear, just, um, and I know the answer, but a doctor does not need to be at the home when, when the, the liquid is consumed. Correct. Yeah. No, the, the, this legislation is one where the person in applying for it, that's when all the boxes are being checked. Is this person mentally competent? Um, you know, they have to be 18 or older, so they have to be an adult. They have to be terminally ill, six months or less to live. So, and that's scrutinized by not just the physician, but there's a whole team. So the passage of this legislation, I would say for the first time, it really protects what the opponents would call the most vulnerable in our society, the elderly, the disabled, et cetera, because it's only that patient that can make this request and have that conversation with the physician. It can't be done by proxy. It can't be done by power of attorney. 
So it really protects that terminally ill individual um, as they navigate the end of life. The conclusion of Demystifying Medical Aid and Dying, Family Voices, after this. Do you consider yourself a fan of podcasts? Show it by donating to the adventures of Memento Mori. Donate $10 or more and we'll mail you a surprise Memento Mori keepsake. $100 or more will give you a post-credit shout-out to let the world know how much you mean to us. Go to remembertodie.com slash donate. That's remembertodie.com slash donate. So with all of that being said, and I can't imagine somebody not wanting a gentle death, what do people, what are the arguments for the people that oppose this? Is, is there a common, I'm assuming there is, but is there a common argument about why someone would oppose this? Myra, you want to uh, start the answer? Because I, I certainly, <laughs> you and I both know the answer is it's the I, Catholic Church primarily. Yeah. The, so the Catholic, so it's, religion. it's religion. Yeah, yeah. Nationwide support for medical aid and dying is 72%. Nationwide support for medical aid and dying amongst Catholics is 70%. So the support is there. It's the, the, the church, the church leadership is opposed and that's fine. They, that, that's their right. They can be opposed to it, but the people sitting in the pews, the congregation, everybody that I still go to the same church that I was baptized in. I'm, I'm Catholic. I was an altar boy. I went to Catholic school. The people sitting in the pews, they agree with Brittany that this is up to the, the, the terminally ill individual, but yes, the opposition primarily comes from, you know, faith based um, arguments of, well, this is not what God intended. Yeah, I don't think God, the loving, caring God that I learned of, would require Brittany to have to continue to endure the suffering and, and for that to only get worse. She goes blind, she becomes paralyzed, and that and have that be her dying process. So, you know, I, I just, it's a shame that that people might think that God somehow requires that. I, I disagree. I think God would celebrate the fact that, yeah, Brittany, she had a gentle death. That's a good thing. Myra, anything to add to that? Well, I think, um, you know, there's very vocal opposition from the church. And I think because, you know, in our country and perhaps many other countries, it's, you know, we, we deny death and we're extremely uncomfortable talking about it. And so it's not something, I think when people are asked by, you know, poll takers, they say, yes, I think someone should be able to get a prescription to end their life if they're terminally ill, et cetera, et cetera. But to like make that view public, to push for it, I think is there's a discomfort around death that people have to get over, they have to face before they, uh, before they can really do that. Yeah, um, we, I think we do culturally have uh, an, an issue denying death, denying American history. So as someone that is moved or feels like they want to help, in what ways can I or can anybody else help get this legislation through in whatever state that we live in. You go to compassionchoices.org 
um, and you can get to that map, click on the state that you live in, and you'll see if legislation has been introduced, the bill numbers, who the legislators, the sponsors are, um, and right there is where um, the whole thing starts. Get in touch with your legislator um, and you know share your story. Um, so yes, to those who are on this broadcast right now is go to compassionchoices.org, click on get involved and you can get in touch with the local CNC personnel as well as uh, find out which legislators need uh, some convincing and reach out to them. Well, well, thank you both. That we are at time. Dan, Myra, uh, I want to give you a heartfelt thanks for this conversation. You can watch the full 63-minute conversation and part two, Demystifying Medical Aid and Dying, The Facts, in the Events tab on CompassionAndChoices.org or on our site, RememberToDie.com. I'll leave you with this. Imagine it's you who is terminally ill. Would you want the option to prevent suffering? Would you want the option to die peacefully, with dignity, in your own home, and on your own terms? I would. If your faith compels you otherwise, then that is also your option. Legislation allowing for self-empowerment and choice should not be influenced by what the Catholic Church deems appropriate. Medical aid in dying is not assisted suicide. Terminology and understanding the eligibility requirements are crucially important when discussing this topic. So, if you see it on your state ballot this year, educate your loved ones and vote with compassion. Every terminally ill American deserves the choice to die with dignity. Let the movement begin here, now. Access to this choice lies in your hands. Freedom from prolonged pain and suffering is a most basic human right. Please make death with dignity an American healthcare choice. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on another episode of The Adventures of Memento Mori. Thanks to Keeper Memorials, Death Doula LA, Compassion and Choices, and Reimagine, Life, Loss, and Love. I'm D.S. Moss, back again the next time for more The Adventures of Memento Mori. The episode was produced by Josh Heilbronner, D.S. Moss, and Hannah Beale. Theme music composed by Mikey Ballou. This has been a production of the Jones Story Company. Until the next time, remember to die.